Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in. The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. The word of God speaks to us. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise up us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For, as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. This is God's word to us. Amen. Thank you. Hey guys, good morning. How are we doing? Yeah, you, got, you can grab a seat, and uh, I'm really, really thankful to be here today. If we haven't met yet, my name is Josh Curry. I'm one of the pastors at Frontline. I'm the lead pastor of our downtown congregation, and uh, normally when I get to be here at Frontline South, which is always super fun for me, normally I just bring love and greetings from our congregations throughout the metro and Shawnee, uh, but this is really fun because two weeks ago, my wife and I got to spend 10 days in India in the city of Mumbai with our church plant there. We planted a church that's called Cornerstone Mumbai. And uh, we sent Sujith and Cheryl Jacob from Frontline Downtown. Sujith was called by God to be the lead pastor. But we also sent a family from Frontline South, the Josephs. And uh, we got to, it was really funny because like our church is big and it's spread out. And I got to meet them a few times when they lived here, but we never got to break bread together. And so it just took them moving to the subcontinent of India for me to get to have a meal with them. 
And uh, it was so fun. We went to their house. They've got a beautiful little apartment in the city of Mumbai, and they cooked this amazing dinner. And we just got to spend a couple of hours talking and praying. And you guys would be so proud of them, man. They are growing like crazy. They're doing a great job as parents. They're taking care of each other. They have unbelievable favor with Hindus all over their apartment complex. Their apartment complex is bigger than entire parts of our city. And uh, they know their neighbors, and they're sharing the gospel, and they're being faithful. And so I bring love and greetings. I bring love and greetings from Cornerstone, Mumbai. It's going great. They've got about 40 adults that are worshiping Jesus on Sundays. So don't forget about them. Keep praying for them. And uh, thank you guys for being so generous with your time, with your talent, with your treasure, and with your relationships. Thanks for sending them there. It really matters. Okay, now... As you saw from our reading, this is just a super easy text for us to dive into. Um, I don't know why Andrew only invites me to be here with texts like this. It's like he doesn't want me to have any friends at Frontline South. <clears throat> so we, we need the Holy Spirit to help us. If you've got a Bible, you can go ahead and flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And uh, I'm going to pray for you. And I would be really grateful if you would pray for me as we open this text up. Uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your faithfulness to pursue all of our lives. And uh, Lord, the places where I feel the pull to build barriers, fences to keep the rule of Jesus out of portions of my life, I thank you that you're so faithful to keep, to keep pointing to those places. So Lord, I pray that today would be a day as we open your word that you would shape us and form us. God, we need your grace to have some things that are not true torn down. And we need your grace to have what's true and lasting and beautiful built up. And we thank you that the amazing combination of your word and your spirit, your word and your spirit can do the work to reduce to rubble the stupid things that aren't going to last into eternity and to build up the eternal kingdom of Jesus. So help us today. Lord, give us tender hearts and uh, speak with us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. 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 Uh, So in September, my wife and I sent our son to Marine Corps boot camp, and we miss him like crazy. And we we did a lot of things over the course of the last summer that we got to be together. Um, We got to train together. We got to work out a lot. We got to eat a lot. We got to watch all of our favorite movies. And uh, one of the movies that I wanted to watch again with my son before he shipped was uh, Godfather 1 and then Godfather 2. I love those movies. We won't talk about Godfather 3. Like Rocky 5, I don't include it in the canon. I'm okay with those movies being buried in shallow graves. They're terrible. But Godfather 1 and 2 is amazing. I love that movie. I love the cinematography. I love the acting. I love the writing. But the thing I really love about that movie is it's a fascinating picture of the way that man-centered religion, man-centered religion always likes to build portions of our lives that are off limits to the rule of Jesus. If you watch that movie, here's what's fascinating. The entirety of their family, this mafia family, is built around the rhythms of the church. They get baptized in the church, and they get buried in the church, and they get married in the church, and they have rhythms of engaging the church calendar. They show up for mass frequently, 
And in the midst of that part of their life that's religious, they then walk out of the building and they straight up kill fools, commit murder and adultery and all kinds of violence in the midst of the world. And I think that I love that movie because my experience as being a pastor in the Bible Belt, though less extreme than that, kind of looks like that. It looks like the human propensity, the human propensity to settle for a form of godliness that denies the power of God. Man-centered religion is masterful. It's masterful at adding Jesus and what we think might be the benefits he brings into our lives to one or two portions of our lives while keeping the rest of our lives off limits. And what I want to say today is that the entirety of the Bible is not about man-centered religion. It's not about a religion where we can control God, where we can manipulate God, where we can use God. The Bible is the proclamation of God's kingdom breaking into human history through his son, Jesus Christ. And what we find about the kingdom of God is that it's not something that can be labeled as a Sunday morning only activity. The kingdom of God is about your mind and your body. It's about your spirit and your flesh. It's about your job and your community. It's about your relationships with friends. It's about how you engage your sexuality. It's about all of life and, in fact, all of the universe belonging to Jesus Christ who was raised from the dead, who points at all things and declares, that's mine. That's mine. And so today as we dive into this text, what we're going to find is, like us, the Corinthians are really good at compartmentalized spirituality. They're good at saying, hey, I want Jesus for my spirit, but I don't want Jesus for my body. And like us, like us, they need the spirit of God to bring the kingdom of God, which is not, it's not the nitpicking intrusion of a, of a perfectionistic father into your life, but it's the very grace and power of God to change everything. We need the kingdom of God to invade all of our life, all 168 hours of our week. And that includes, that includes all things and our sexuality, and our sexuality. So take your Bible. We're going to dive in. There's three things that are happening at Corinth in their relationship to their bodies and sex. Um, they, have a, they have a misunderstanding of grace, and their misunderstanding of grace coupled with a Hellenistic view of their body, and I'll unpack what that means in a few minutes, but their misunderstanding of grace and their misunderstanding of the body and what the body is for leads to a profound misunderstanding of what sex actually is. And so we're going to walk through this text together. Number one, they misunderstood grace. They misunderstood grace. Now, one of the things you got to understand in our passage today is that Paul is quoting back to the Corinthians some of their favorite slogans. Uh, if you've ever been to a Christian bookstore, you've seen slogans on coffee mugs. You've seen slogans on t-shirts. And the Corinthians, like us, have some favorite slogans. And what Paul's going to do is quote their slogans back to them, and then he's going to unpack how they've misunderstood Jesus and his kingdom. So here's what Paul says, quoting the Corinthians' slogan, all things are lawful for me. They love claiming that. But Paul adds, not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. 
Okay, their slogan, all things are lawful for me, understands 50% of what God's grace does, but it doesn't understand the other 50%. Uh, They had heard Paul preach the gospel of grace in their city, and, and in the midst of him preaching the gospel of grace, I'm sure they heard Paul say things like Romans chapter 8, 1 and 2. Here's what it says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Thanks be to God. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. That's amazingly good news. We've been set free from the law of sin and death. But what had happened in the Corinthians' minds is they stopped there thinking, hey, all things are now lawful for me. We're set free from the law of sin and death, but they don't understand the kind of freedom that God's given them and what to do with their freedom. And Paul is going to quote their slogan back to them, and he's going to remind them in his, in his answer to their slogan that the grace of God doesn't just set us free from, but it also sets us free to something, to something. Look at verse 12 again. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And the way that he's using the term helpful is not like personally helpful for our own self-actualization. He's talking about the context of relationship. All things may be lawful, but not all things are going to build up people in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what had happened for the Corinthians is they they had literally reduced temple prostitutes, which were all over their city, multiple different temples in the city of Corinth, worship their pagan gods through ritualistic prostitution. And Corinthian Christians were having sex with prostitutes, and as they had sex with prostitutes, listen, they were dehumanizing those prostitutes. They were reducing them almost to the point of being human trash cans that they could expel lust into. And what Paul is saying is, hey guys, you don't understand grace. Like, you want to claim all things are lawful, but you're not understanding that the grace of God is not freedom to use people, to objectify people, to devour people. The grace of God is freedom to love people. The pagan prostitutes in your city are immortal image bearers of the most high God that Jesus died on a cross for. And when you have a transaction with them that reduces them to simple pieces of flesh, you don't understand that the grace of God is power to bless, not destroy. It's power to love, not devour. It's power, it's power to see people rightly as they really are, as valuable to the living God, as immortal image bearers of the Most High, not as objects for us to use and discard. This is what Paul's getting at in Galatians chapter 5. Think about what he says. For you were called to freedom. Praise be to God for freedom. We, we have freedom in Jesus. But then he says, only don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Hey, friends, like the grace of God is not the freedom of God to do whatever we want to do relationally. The grace of God in a husband's life is not freedom to be selfish and entitled It's freedom to love our wives. The grace of God is not freedom to treat our kids however we want to treat our kids. It's the freedom of God 
to disciple, to nurture, to discipline, and to train them up in the fear and love of God. So they misunderstood. They misunderstood that grace doesn't set us free to relate to people however we want. Grace sets us free to love each other. In addition, they misunderstood the grace of God as it relates to what we're free from. Look at verse 12 again. He says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated or mastered by anything. What Paul is saying is that the grace of God is the freedom of God from the law of sin and death. It's not the freedom of God to then become slaves to our appetites and our desires. The grace of God doesn't set us free to become people living in bondage, but the grace of God sets us free to love and obey Jesus. Look down at verse 19 and 20. Paul writes, Do you not know that your body, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Here's what Paul's saying. Hey, Corinthians, hey, Frontline South, like the grace of God, the grace of God is not freedom to then become slaves to greed and claim that we're under grace, we can do whatever we want or slaves to lust, or slaves to gluttony, or slaves to all kinds of bodily desires that left unchecked can bring us into slavery. The grace of God is freedom to belong to Jesus. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. And, and I consistently think about that verse. When I, when I look at my own life, and I think about the last 20 plus years of following Jesus, and my sins and my weakness and my failures, and I think about the cost that God paid to purchase me, I feel like, what kind of God would do that? Because here's the cost that God paid to purchase you. It was an infinite price of his own son bleeding out on a cross in your place and mine for our sins. That's how, that's how deeply your father wanted to forgive you and reconcile you that he paid an infinite price of offering his son who willingly came to take our place. That's the value of you to the living God. You are not your own. And that's actually really, really good news. Really good news. You belong to him. In addition, number two, they misunderstood the body. And, and let me give you just a couple of things on this before we dive in and look at a vision for your body. Um, Greek philosophy loved to, loved to unpack the idea of dualism. In the Hellenistic world, this idea was that your body is at best irrelevant, at best irrelevant, and at worst, your body is a prison. And what really matters about human beings is not their bodies, but it's their spirit. It's the immaterial part of you. And the idea was, the idea was true salvation, whatever that's going to be, whether that's religious or philosophical, true salvation, true freedom doesn't really have anything to do with your body because your body is a bit of a prison. True salvation is going to be experienced when you become an immaterial spirit. And that idea, that Hellenistic worldview of dualism, that the body doesn't matter or that the body is a prison and the spirit is what really matters, has been fully adopted by the Corinthian Christians and they start to believe that what really matters is just the spirit inside of us, not our bodies. 
And so for the Corinthians, they're like, hey man, my body doesn't really matter. My body, in fact, has appetites and I just deal with them and it doesn't affect my spirit. When the body's hungry, I eat. When the body's sleepy, I sleep. When the body's thirsty, I drink. When the body has sexual desire, it doesn't matter what I do with that desire. It's just a bodily appetite. And what Paul is going to do is he's going to correct their misunderstanding of the body. And what I would say, listen, what I would say, as technology is outpacing our wisdom as Westerners, and as we again are faced with American philosophies that really are, that really are dualistic, what only matters is your desire and what you think inside your head, This is a moment where Christians desperately need to rediscover a theology of our bodies. What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean to be an embodied spirit? What does it mean? What does it mean to be a whole human being that's not just a spirit and not just a body, but that is this wild, amazing combination of the two that makes up the totality of your person? So I want to give you a few things to think about. A few things that Paul would want the Corinthians to know about their bodies. Look at verse 13. Let me read it, and then we're going to look at some points. Paul says, the body is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. That's the Corinthian argument that, hey, bodies have desires and appetites, and we meet them. Sex is the same as just any other bodily appetite. But Paul corrects. He says, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies, this is wild, think about this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Look at verse 19. Do you not know that your body, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You were not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Okay, let, let me just point out a few things that I want you to think about. First of all, God created human beings with bodies. If you go back to the beauty of Genesis 1 and 2, here's what we find. God created Adam, our first father, out of the dust of the ground with a body. And God was not too, he was not too pure and spiritual to touch matter. In fact, he declared matter good. And God kneels down in the dirt and he crafts man's body and then God breathes his breath into the first man's nostrils and man becomes this wild creature that is both immaterial spirit and material body. And in the very beginning, God declares that that's good, that's not bad. The body wasn't a mere tool or an impediment to true spirituality, the body was an essential part of what it means to be a full human being. Human beings, human beings are body and spirit. And it's good to be body and spirit. There's nothing in the Bible's vision of the body that declares the body a prison or the body as inherently dirty, or the body as something that simply needs to be shed so that you can achieve true spirituality. In fact, the Bible is radically pro-body. God made you to have a body. And what we find, what we find is that when man and woman fell into sin, both their spirit and their body was corrupted by sin. And therefore, in the fullness of time, when Jesus shows up, he doesn't just redeem our spirits, but he redeems our bodies. Jesus redeems 
our bodies. Paul says the body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. This is amazing. This means that Jesus loves and claims not just your spirit, but your body. And your body is called to be a member of Christ, to belong to Christ, to be a part of Christ. When Jesus died on the cross and when Jesus rose from the dead, he wasn't just, he wasn't just claiming the part of you that you can't see. He was claiming the part of you that you can see. Both together. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is simply a process of getting to know God's word. It's asking questions and giving answers is this. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus loves your body. He cares for your body. Your body is important to him. And your body is so valuable to God that number three, the body, the body is filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul says, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? Um, Paul's already said that the Corinthian church is corporately the temple of God. But now he's saying something really amazing. He's saying not only are we corporately the temple of God as God fills the church together, but individually you are God's temple. Your body is sacred space if you're a follower of Jesus because the spirit of God lives inside of you. He's with you all the time. And the spirit of God is not grossed out by your body. He's not ashamed of your body. He actually inhabits your body so that you can make much of Jesus and live a life of worship. In addition, contrary to what the Corinthians are believing, the body will also be raised with Christ. Paul says, and God raised the Lord will also raise us up by his power. The final destination of the body is not destruction so that we can be pure spirits. The final destination of your body is that it will be raised from the dead, made imperishable, glorified, so that you can live for all eternity in the new heavens and the new earth as a glorified Christian who is both body and soul. This is amazing. Like, our bodies on this side of heaven, they, they fail us, they break, they wear out, they get sick, they die. But the message of the resurrection of Jesus is that the final destination for your body is not to simply decay and cease to exist, but God will, by his power, in the same way he resurrected his son Jesus, on the great day when Christ returns, he will resurrect you. Your body's final destination is to be with God, to be with God. And in addition, the body, therefore, is essential for a life of worship in obedience. Paul says, you were bought with the price, so glorify God with your body. The Corinthians have it all wrong. You can't glorify God just with your spirit. In fact, if you think you can glorify God just with your spirit, you'll use your body as an instrument of unrighteousness. And what God wants is for our bodies to be offered to God as a living sacrifice, as an instrument of worship and mission that we would use our voices to build up, that we would use our hands to care for each other, that we, would, that we would provide protection and strength to those around us, that we would use our bodies to honor and love Jesus and to take care of one another. This means all of life is important. 
Now, you can understand, if you believe both of those two things like the Corinthians, if you believe that God's grace is just freedom to basically treat people however you want to treat them, and if God's grace is freedom to simply submit to all your urges as masters and you a slave, and if you believe that the body doesn't really matter, the body is just a prison that you're eventually going to escape, you can understand why you would have a really low and twisted view of sex. So Paul is going to finally correct their misunderstanding of sex. The Corinthians mistakenly believe that they're free by grace to do as they please and the body doesn't matter. And therefore, for them, sex was reduced to just another bodily function like eating or going to the bathroom. And that's not what sex is. There's something powerful about sex. There's something physical and spiritual about sex. So pick up with me at verse 16. Let's look at it together. Do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Tim Keller unpacks it like this. He writes, in short, Sex with a prostitute is wrong because every sex act is supposed to reflect an absolute and complete covenant unity. Please um, hear me say this, especially if you're a young person in the room, like in particular, like sit up, pay attention, because God has a vision for sexuality that's really deep and profound, and our culture doesn't. He goes on, he writes, there must be no physical union unless there is also every other kind, a legal, economic, personal, emotional, and spiritual union. There must not be one unity without the rest. Likewise, C.S. Lewis likens sex without marriage to tasting without swallowing and digesting. And and here's what's happening in our culture. Increasingly, um, post the sexual revolution of the 60s, which, by the way, has been proven to be a failed social experiment. It's not leading to better sex or better relationships or more freedom. Like, we're more confused, we're more anxious, and we're lonelier than we've ever been. Because our culture's only view of sexuality is that sex is just a happiness technology. And as a happiness technology, that what really matters is just performing well and being a consumer. But here's what God's vision for sex and sexuality is. There is no such thing as casual sex because the physical union of husband and wife is also a profound spiritual union where two, where two become one in ways that are reflective of our God who's triune and powerful. Sex is mysterious, sex is deep, Sex is weighty. It points to God in both its unitive or its one-making power, and it points to God in its procreative power. And God's clear and consistent command that sex be limited to the boundaries of the exclusive and permanent covenant of marriage between a man and a woman is not rooted in puritanical fear. It's not rooted in hostility towards biological function as if God thinks the body's dirty, and it's not rooted in in bigotry. It's rooted in understanding God's vision for how powerful sex is, the purpose of sex. Sex unites body and soul. Sex mysteriously points to being drawn into the otherness of God. 
Sex reflects the creative power of God and its potential for procreation. Sex points to the union of the church and Jesus as we become a part of Christ through covenant. Therefore, there is no such thing as casual sex. And, and I, I was thinking about C.S. Lewis. He, he wrote this thing in um, Mere Christianity. It's not about sex. It's about, um, it's about free will. But I think it applies in a really interesting way. Here, here's what he wrote. He said, why did God make a creature of such rotten stuff that it went wrong? Like, don't we sometimes wonder, like, with fists raised to heaven, why did you even make human beings if we would go this, this astray, if we would do these things to each other? Lewis goes on to say this, the better stuff a creature is made of, the cleverer and stronger and freer it is. Then the better it will be if it goes right, but also the worse it'll be if it goes wrong. A cow cannot be very good or very bad. A dog can be both better or worse. A child better and worse still. An ordinary man, still more so. A man of genius, still more so. A superhuman spirit, best or worst of all. (laughs) Okay, listen, I think this applies also to the gifts of God. Like, Little smaller gifts that God's given us, if they go wrong, they can do damage, but it might not be catastrophic. Like the gift of bread can go wrong, right? Like we can become gluttonous with food. uh, We can overindulge in food. We can become stingy with food and not share it with one another. But the worst, the worst that a piece of bread can be corrupted to be is exponentially less dangerous than the higher gift of sex, Sex is this powerful gift that was supposed to do something profound and something reflective of deeper mysteries. Therefore, when we twist it and we get it wrong, we shouldn't be surprised at the kind of devastation it brings. It's like the number of wildfires the last few years in the West. It's just been crazy with the combination of drought and perhaps needing to renew some forestry practices that have been forgotten in our generation. But we just keep having these massive, epic wildfires. And what's interesting is to hear the stories of how often those fires get started with just a careless campfire. And I don't know about you guys, but I don't like camping without a campfire. I don't want to sit there in the dark and just be cold. I love camping, but I want a campfire. I want, I want the warmth of it, the beauty of it. I want to cook on it. I want to sit with my friends around it. I want it to foster conversation and warmth. I want it to, I want it to be beautiful. and I want to stare at it. But when that campfire is not contained within the fire pit and it gets blown out of its boundaries, it can devour an entire national forest. And what God is saying is, hey guys, don't take sex lightly, not because God's embarrassed that he created it and not because God thinks it's bad, but don't take sex lightly because God created it with unbelievable, unbelievable weight and power to do something profound and to do something lasting. So the world says, hey, like out of both sides of our mouth, the world says, sex is nothing. It's just like eating or drinking. It's not true, God says. And then the world out of the other side of its mouth says, hey, you know what? Sex is also everything. Without sex, you can't have a good life. You can't actualize. And the fact that the Christian church would call people that are not married to abstain is one of the greatest forms of abuse that exists. To which God says, actually, it's a gift. It's not 
ultimate. It's not the center of your life. It's not your hope. It's not your salvation. And it's not the answer to what's wrong with you. And therefore, therefore, we're to receive it as a gift, but we're to receive it as a gift within the parameters that God gave it to us. So a couple of hopes today as we wrap up and go to the Lord's Supper. Man, first hope. I just pray if you are engaging in disobedience around your sexuality, that you would hear the voice of your heavenly father calling you to repent. Um, Paul uses really strong language. He's like, shall I take a member of Christ and make it a member of a prostitute? Never, never. So my prayer is like, if you're a husband in the room or a wife in the room and, and the emotional affair is starting to get elevated, my prayer is that you would hear the living God lovingly raising his voice to you and warning you to stop before you blow up your family, before you blow up your life, before you potentially shipwreck your faith, hear the voice of the living God calling you from scripture back to repentance and obedience. My prayer, my prayer is that we would do deeper work around what shame is. Because our culture, our culture thinks that shame is only bad. The Bible says that there's a bad kind of shame and there's a good kind of shame. The bad kind of shame tells us that we're disqualified from ever being loved. We're worthless. And that's not true because the, the gospel of Jesus says that God loves you so much, he sent his only begotten son to die for you, that your father in heaven delights in you and wants to know you and wants to draw you into an intimate relationship for all eternity. So the places where you've either sinned or you've been sinned against and the voice of shame is a voice that says, the gospel might work for others, but not for me. My prayer is that you would hear your father say, that's not true. I love you. There's nothing you've done. There's nothing that's been done to you that creates a scarlet letter in the kingdom of God. That's that's not God's grace. God's grace can renew all things in your life. My My prayer is that we would receive, though, the good gift of shame as one of the core emotions that God created creatures called human beings. And the good gift of shame is realizing our creatureliness. It's realizing that we're not God and we need to be clothed. We need to be fed, that we're hungry, that we're naked, that we're poor, that we need other people, that we need God, that we need healing. My prayer is that we would be the kind of people that do do hear the voice of our Father to push back against the lie of shame, but to also survey our lives and receive the places we need God's provision and care and help and wholeness and healing. Can we pray together?